My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is recorded live in San Francisco and produced in collaboration with Dave Clark at Studio Pod Media. Our show coordinator is Deanna Marinci, with additional editing and music presented by Notalab. This episode of Technically Speaking is sponsored by Automatic, the people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Automatic's 1,400 people hail from 79 countries and speak 99 languages. Their open source software products democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it and anyone with a product can sell it, regardless of income, gender, politics, language, or country. More than 1 billion people use Automatic products every month. Automatic also contributes directly to WordPress, the open source project that powers over 40% of websites on the internet. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check out the latest job listings today. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. Hey, everybody. My name is Harrison Wheeler, and welcome to another episode of Technically Speaking. My guest today is Dominique Ward, who is the head of design operations at Atlassian. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of information about yourself so they can get acclimated and familiar? Yeah. Well, my name is Dominique Ward, as you said. I lead design operations at Atlassian which is uh, famous in some respects for some great products like Jira, Confluence, Trello. And yeah, I mean, that's the long and short of it. Yeah. So how did you get into operations? Uh, It is a long winding road that if I go way back, I started out studying aero astro engineering at Purdue. I woke up one day and I was like, there is no job security and engineering, I'm going to switch to philosophy. Mm. So I ended up doing that. And I did not actually finish my degree, but I ended up working at a startup. And what's funny is that I applied for an office manager role at the startup. And this is 2008. So jobs were very difficult to come by. But I didn't get the job. But they called me two weeks later. And they're like, we have a job for you. And we think you'd be great for it. So I go in and I meet with the VP of finance. And he's telling me about the job. And I'm like, wait, hold on. I have no finance background (laughs) whatsoever. I have no interest in finance. I don't want to become a CPA. I don't want to be a bookkeeper. And he's like, oh, but no, but I think you can do it. I'm like, absolutely, I can do it, but no interest. And I ended up getting the job. And as an analyst on the finance team, I was the first hire. And from there, I went to Frog Design, the world-famous innovation design consultancy. And I started in program management, which I hated. And about a year later, they started up a business operations team and I transferred to that and really started to cut my teeth in business operations as it relates to a design company and organization. Sure. Maybe take us through where your head is at, because I think in this day and age, there's such a pathway to move into a function within an organization. So did you feel confident moving in this? Like at what point were you like, oh, this is like a legit direction to move in and really commit to it? Well, 
What's interesting is that design operations as a function didn't really become independent until maybe about 2015. And the first design ops team was Meredith Black's team at Pinterest. But other than that, design operations was, it was being done, obviously, but it was, at least my vantage point, it was happening in consultancies. So the six years that I spent at Frog, from my perspective, design was also operational and the how you do design and how you manage and develop teams and how you staff work and all of that was design in and of itself. So it's interesting seeing how it's become a function and that people are like, oh, I'm really interested in that. And people who are ops-minded or designers or design-interested program managers or finance people or whatever have a different career development path, which is nice. Just to recap that, it almost feels like, at least in the agency space, it's always sort of been around. And now it's actually working itself more in-house to support more broader function. Yeah, absolutely. And every organization is different. Depends on the needs of the org. Sure. Sure. Okay. So we're going to take a break there. I want to get into to some, some icebreakers before we get into the, the meat of the conversation. So what are you most looking forward to? Things are starting to open up. I think Chicago just opened up. I think San Francisco's opening up all the way. New York is, is opening up pretty soon. So what's on the top of the list for you? So I spent most, if not all of my formative years, my adult years in New York, and I just moved to the West Coast two and a half years ago. And obviously, I have not been back to New York in the last year and a half. So I'm actually doing the thing right now that I'm excited about. I just flew out to New York two days ago or Friday. And so I'm visiting my mother and my sisters here and just like eating all the food, seeing my friends. So that's the thing I'm excited about. Yeah. And what part of New York? I was in Brooklyn, okay. Fort Greene, the best city in New York. I will argue that till my death. Yeah. <laughs> you got to let the listeners know why though. Why the best? Uh, so Fort Greene has a rich history. It is obviously the, you know, where 40 Acres and a Mule, Spike Lee's production company is based. It has a long time black community in beautiful brownstones and great food. And it's just the first place where in New York, I just like, I know all my neighbors. We say hi when we walk down the street. It's a community. I never wanted to be on a community board before I lived in Fort Greene. And I lived there for 10 years. And it's interesting to see how it's changed over the years, definitely the last five years that I was there, gentrification and such. But it's also like super easy to get anywhere else in the city because it's right near Atlantic. So best kept, non-secret, but beautiful community. Yeah. So the community still holding strong despite all of the changes. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some noticeable things, usually on the melanin side of things. Yeah. <laughs> but there are many people who have lived their whole lives in Fort Greene. I think at one point, I don't know if it's still true, but it was the most socioeconomically diverse neighborhood in the city. Because you got projects on one side or not even on one side, like here. And then you've got brownstones. And it's just really lovely and has beautiful color and sounds and history. Yeah. And the summer makes it that much better. Uh, so yes. perfect timing. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So next question, what's something that you're really, really geeking out on right now? Same thing I'm always geeking out on, quite frankly. I am a big systems nerd. 
and a big service design nerd. My team is a cross-functional team. So they're not all like from ops backgrounds or from program management background. And so half of my team are content designers. So they're building up their skills and capabilities in service design. So walking them through that has been really fun. It's like, oh, I see how it connects, which is is great. Yeah. All right. And then here's a really deep introspective question. What is something that you have learned about yourself over the past 15 months? (sighs) So it's not a new learning. I needed to remind myself of this. I really need alone time and time to like think and navigate my feelings, my ideas, all the things. And what was interesting is that my partner and I were long distance for a year and a half before, and we had moved into a new place. She moved to San Francisco. And five days before San Francisco went into lockdown. And so we went from long distance to she's literally the only person I see 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah. And she's like an extreme extrovert. So, and I'm an introvert who loves to interact with people, but then walk away, Sure, you know? Yeah. So it was definitely just a reminder that you just need space and, and time to think and get, getting back to that. And I think like everyone, many people lost their routines at some point and had to find out different ways to mitigate that. And so I think with we just moved to LA. And so we have a larger space, we have a house and it's sunnier than San Francisco. So it's offering new ways to separate and also to find that stillness that I crave. Yeah. I was having a conversation on another recording and it's amazing that despite the fewer sort of social interactions that we've had, everything in our lives has at least been amplified. Like 10x. And one of the things that was really interesting, we were talking about more or less like the auditory experiences. And connection almost feels like it happens faster than just because our interactions are more purposeful. But at the same time, before we had so many distractions, we had so much context. And so I think it took a lot longer for our brain to process these things versus now it's just like, it's just a lot. (laughs) So I feel you on that, especially kind of being separated, but then all of a sudden just seeing someone 20%. We've never even had that before. At least we could go to work for, for eight hours and kind of escape that. And Exactly. Exactly. Whatever your commute is, that could be your alone time, but you just didn't have any options before. No options. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you that you got more space. And that sun really does make a difference. It does. It does. <laughs> it does. Especially because my office in our San Francisco apartment was our dining room. So we never got to use it as a dining room. And it was an interior window, like facing like a little alleyway. So it got no natural light. And it was just like sitting in this dungeon all day, especially in the winter. And now, you know, you got the Southern California sun. It feels wonderful. Exactly. And you can appreciate it more because you've you've lived on the East Coast. You've lived in San Francisco. Yeah. So I feel like there's more appreciation for that. So again, super happy for you. Thank you. And you know, it just means the more sun, the more that you will flourish. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So, hey, let's kind of maybe level set with the audience. Would love to maybe know what exactly is 
design operations? Mm-hmm. So design operations is different for different teams, but for the most part, or at least my definition is amplifying the value and impact of design orgs and design teams. And again, that varies from team to team, depending on the need of the design org, but it's about how design gets done, the gears that turn it. So that could be anything from figuring out how like the design process and workflow, tooling, to managing budgets, to design program management is a big component in some teams, but it can really run the gamut. I think some orgs are are more strategic than others. Some are definitely more heavily program management. Yeah. And it's really great if you catch a team that's newly forming because it can kind of develop into whatever it needs to be. What does the output of it look like? I mean, does it work its way actually into the product? Is there sort of like a thing that consumers can see? Would love to maybe know just kind of like what is the long tail of operations and how does that work its way into what folks interact with on a daily basis? So I think this is the crux of the, (laughs) I don't want to say the problem, but the challenge that many behind the scenes teams have. Any operations, program management, function, anyone who makes things happen, EA, right? You a lot of times can't see directly the impact, but the impact is indirect. And no one knows what's happening or what you do until something goes wrong. But I think for some orgs, for example, design system sits under the design operations team. And that's a a really good tangible example of how you can see that come out. There are many, especially heads of design and, and leads who are focused on how do we build capability and uplift skills within the org. And while that's not a direct impact to the customer, it's an indirect because you build skills and capability within designers that has better output when it comes to the work and what gets into the customer's hands. So it's a tricky, tricky question, but that's also kind of like the question that always pops up. If you go to any design ops conference, it's like, how do you measure and communicate the value of design operations beyond just like time saved or dollars saved? You need the ability to storytell and connect those dots. Yeah, I'd imagine too, there's a lot of partnership with leadership as well to be able to advocate for the benefit of it, right? I would almost say at least from management perspective, to have somebody that is actually partnering with me to help develop learning modules to better my team, even design systems, that opens up so much more space and time to actually focus on solving the hard stuff. Absolutely. I think I stole this and then kind of like remixed it a little bit from Dave Maloof, who is a design ops leader, but he slash I said, let designers focus on design work and let design managers focus on managing those designers and pushing the work forward and let design operations handle everything else. And so that everything else bucket is pretty big and could be whatever's necessary, but it's a lot of times about making space for the work to happen and for teams to work effectively and efficiently and quite frankly, as resiliently as possible. And I think in the last year and a half, that has become even more clear of the need. Yeah. One of the things that I I really love about your story is you were doing this before it was a thing, (laughs) right? At least at larger sort of design-focused organizations. 
what are sort of the building blocks to building an operations team? And where do you see some opportunities for organizations that may not even have one that are starting to kind of think about it now? So there are a few different versions of design ops teams if you want to put them in buckets. There's the design program management focused design ops, which is really about the management of design work and pushing that forward. So it's just as it sounds like. And I think at in-house, there were program managers or, or PMs, if the way before product managers became a thing in-house, and they kind of, you know, they helped scope out the project, they helped lead the project along and make sure designers were delivering deliverables. And that same in a different way is happening in-house from a design program management perspective. And then adjacent to that in the smaller capacity is kind of like the managing of budgets and tooling and things like that. My org, the way that I kind of think about it is is more in a center of excellence model slash very representative or reflective of my experience, right? Of coming from an operations perspective. And at one point before I was at Atlassian, I was head of business operations at an advertising agency, but it actually ended up being head of all operations, which meant finance ops, business ops, people ops, project ops, and many other ops. And that's the model that I kind of look at it. What is the full spectrum of how things operate and figuring out how to build out those capabilities. And so it's a little bit, in my view, a little bit more robust and looks at things from a a broader ecosystem. And so for me, I take a, a service design approach to building out and my methodology and my team and really how do things fit into a broader ecosystem? Where do they connect? And how do you make sure that you're not just going through the motions and just like, okay, just trucking along? Because really, literally just taking what has been offloaded to managers or in sometimes designers and just putting it on someone else, as opposed to figuring out how to solve the core problem and getting to how to actually make teams work better. So that's the crux of it. So service design is a really key component of how my team works and how I think about putting it together and how it can impact the broader org. Well, I would, I would imagine if it's a service design approach, you're doing a lot of research yourself to understand where those gaps are, understand how folks are functioning. Out of that, where have you seen some of the biggest opportunities? And you don't have to necessarily relate it to the work that you do directly, but I'm sure there's a community that you're working with, you have peers. What are some of the things that tend to bubble up the most? Yeah, so we have a really big, well, we have a big design team. It's not enormous like a Facebook, right? But we have about 350 designers, and that does not include our researchers. And we have many, many different teams and about, I can't even count, off the top of my head right now, how many products we have, as well as the platform team. And so we have the larger orgs and then the product teams, the platform teams, and then the feature teams. So all these different teams and different triads or squads or whichever configuration the leadership of that, that stream of work is. So all the pain points that happen tend to get you know, it feels like an isolated incident, especially if you're on that team. It's like no one else experiences our pain. But if, you know, you have your ears to the ground and you're listening to different people, whether it's, you know, I spend a lot of time 
working across all of our heads of design and design managers, and then also touching base with like lead designers and also junior designers. And you start to hear things from different pockets. And you're like, this is not unique. This is actually endemic to the org. And so how do you find the, the solve for the root problem? But you also have to recognize that it's not one size fits all. You may have the same problem within you know, the design system team, but that solution is not going to work for the Agile DevOps team. And so you kind of have to contend with culture because we have a very autonomy-driven culture. And so it's like, we have the power to solve our own problems, which is great, but it's also extra work. Right. Isn't Atlassian, for the most part, primarily distributed? Yes. So we are based in Sydney and we have teams and offices from Bangalore to San Francisco, Mountain View. But we are now team anywhere, which means we're not required to go back into the offices whenever the offices may open, which adds a different layer of complexity. Because you already had teams that were split between Sydney and San Francisco or Sydney and Mountain View. And now what happens when some of those team members move to New Orleans or to Toronto? So we're still working out what that looks like or what that will look like. But the teams in in the past in Sydney, many of them, most of them were co-located, which was not the case with the ones in the US. Most of them were distributed. So it's kind of like, how do you balance that? So it's definitely making sure you have the ear to the ground. When I started, I did probably about a month and a half of just like listening sessions and hearing about pain points and figuring out where the gaps were. And that happens periodically, both through surveys. We have a company-wide survey where we get a sense of how people are feeling and how people are working on teams because we're the teamwork company, right? And then things that surface just in every day. And that gives us an idea of where we can find opportunity spaces to either mitigate a pain point or to help share learnings. Because I think that's also something that many teams are experiencing, especially with work from home, is that many managers, for example, don't have great visibility into what's happening or find it really difficult to figure out what's happening with every single member of their team. And so how do you connect the dots there? Yeah. The future of work is here at Automatic. The people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Join a team of diverse global perspectives. Create the work environment and schedule that empowers you to perform at your very best. At Automatic, what matters is the work you produce, not how many hours you put in. Work from anywhere you choose. There are automatications working right now in 79 countries around the globe. The intellectual and cultural diversity that results is critical to the company's success. Automatic believes in constant learning and offers mentorship and personal coaching to support your growth. As a small company with a huge footprint, Automatic offers you the chance to have an impact and make a difference. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit Automatic.com to check the latest job listings. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. I had a question, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it was around sort of like your collective experience. And just from what you've summarized here, it seems like your collective experience may play a role, but everything is dynamic because 
what may have worked yesterday and for a certain team, it can change tomorrow. Absolutely. Is that still true? Like, is there still things that you bring to it? Or is it just at this point, we'll figure it out as we go along? Well, there's definitely like <laughs> learnings that you can apply. It's never going to be a one-to-one, right? Yeah, sure. And I think that's kind of one of the things that I try to, when I talk to designers, and when I think about like ways of working and how you grow over the course of your career. And I like to compare it to like learning music. So like when you're very young in your career, you're like, you know, I'm learning the notes. I know how to play this. These are the chords. This is exactly how it gets played. And the same thing, like you, either you go to school or you go to a boot camp or you're learning something. And it's like, this is exactly how you do this. And this is how I do a wireframe. And I don't know how to do anything else or like kind of apply it in a different perspective. And so as you get older and you get more comfortable with those fundamentals, or you get more comfortable, let's say, if it's a process in that way of working, the step-by-step, then you can start to improvise. And so it's like, oh, I know all the basic chords. I know the theory. And then I can just like, ooh, yeah, I can add my little riff in here. But then when you start to master that, you then can get together with other people who have mastered their instrument and mastered the theory and all those things. And then you can improvise together. You can jam. And then when you get really skilled and you get together with other people, you can make jazz. And so there's so many teams that are trying to get to making jazz before they've ever mastered the fundamentals. So that's kind of like the same thing when you're trying to think about how to apply something and how to apply your experience to a new set of problems. Because it's usually not that unique and it's usually not that surprising or interesting it's actually like how you solve the problem and that's how you develop and grow over the course of your career is your ability to apply the skills that you already have and that have honed in different ways right right so how do folks get into a career in operations at least in 2021 there are a few different paths in many organizations design operations is part of the career ladder And many times, if you like, once you get to a senior point, you can diverge into design ops. Also, because it's like a newer field. So many of the people who have newer field in quotation marks, but many of the people who have been in design operations over the past five years, again, came from agencies, were designers themselves, were program managers, were in, there are a few of us who were in business operations at agencies. And so it was a natural transition. But now you have a lot of new people who are like interested in it. And so many of those are designers turn operators or people who have worked like in finance or are very are actually quite junior who are like, oh, this is the avenue that I would like to go in. There's no like right way, but obviously design program management, also design management. Many design managers are are really interested in because that's at a certain point in your career, you find that you're doing a lot of more operational things yeah, and not necessarily like in the weeds, like you're not pixel pushing and you're not actually managing on the groundwork, especially if you're more senior. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of that happening from design managers? That's a really, really interesting insight there. Yeah. I mean, the person who was in my role before me, Tim Paciola, he's also a former frog and he was a creative director at Frog in Sydney before he joined Atlassian. And he was interested in in operational side of it. And so he switched over to design ops. 
and let our design ops function. And then, you know, about a year in, he was like, oh, I'd rather go back to design. <laughs> <laughs> and so he switched back over. But there are, are many. And, you know, I think there's a designer named Z, I can't remember her last name right now, who's also, you know, a designer who, or former, former design manager who has recently, in the last year or so, switched. And she's like, got a really great perspective on design operations and as a former and recent practitioner. So I think it's really interesting, especially if you're not, if you don't necessarily want to be in the weeds anymore, uh, like navigating and making trade-offs with your PM and engineering counterparts, which is not to say that you don't make trade-offs in design operations. I don't want to give that false impression. Sure, sure. Well, you're selling it well to the listeners that might have an inkling. Come over to the dark side. Oh, it's not the dark. Look, I, I love, I love our design ops team. So hats off to all the work that you all do and and also kind of pushing it forward too. I think larger organizations with more money that's being able to develop these working functions allows the industry to move forward as well. So it's really great. And this is a really great conversation. So thank you so much for taking us through that. We've talked about work a lot, but maybe what's something that you do outside of work that plays a big influence in your life? Well, pre-pandemic, I did a lot of traveling and I was and am like a big advocate of the arts. So in New York, I was a big theater person and went to a lot of performing arts. And, and I worked at a, for probably about the first 10 years of my career, I also had a second job, not because I needed it, because I wanted it at the Brooklyn Museum, because I wanted to be around art. And so that's something that I, I spend a lot of time doing and, and thinking about. And also, I'm a Buddhist practitioner, and I have been for probably about 15, 17 years. Wow. Obviously, you know, like I said, sometimes we fall off on certain things when we're in stressful times, and sometimes we lean in. And so sitting and studying and bringing um, my Zen practice into kind of like all the things that I do, I try to do that quite frequently. And other than that, I just think the last year, I've really tried to lean into some of the things that like bring me happiness in the, you know, where you can find it in the pockets. So long walks, listening to music, learning a bunch. I think that one of the things that I missed in being in quarantine is meeting new people and learning and having new ideas and getting new ideas and, and learning about things. So I was a big I always went to lectures and talks and, and all those things. And so Clubhouse has been a really great, definitely in the first, you know, what, from in the fall? Three, four months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just like, oh, all these great conversations and really great content and going from room to room. It filled that gap that I had. Yeah. Well, just like you said before, and I love this, is playing jazz and that improvising and jamming. That's something I think a lot of us really long for. I think as you were kind of walking through, even just going to a gallery, I was like, oh, yeah, it feels like forever. So I love that. And the fact that you call it a pandemic also speaks a lot to your mindset on things. You're giving it a nickname. <laughs> uh, panorama, pandemic. Yeah. Anything to make it fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dominique, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. How can folks get in touch with you? 
I know you you mentioned that you're doing some some talks. Is there anything coming up that that folks can put on their calendars to to attend? Yeah. So later this week, I think Wednesday morning, nine a.m. Pacific time. I'll be on a panel with the design ops assembly. So if you're interested in design operations, I should say, rewind. There are a bunch of really great communities. Design ops assembly is is one of the longest running and it's founded by Meredith Black, who I mentioned before. And it's a Slack channel and also a website where you can get a lot of information about design operations and share a lot of learnings and, and things that other ops leaders and practitioners are doing. And so on a monthly basis, there is usually a panel. And so this month, myself and four others are going to be on a panel about diversity and inclusion in design operation or in design. Basically, it's about the role that design operations plays in diversity and inclusion on design teams. And it's going to be moderated by the wonderful Allison Rand, who is a, a good friend and former colleague. She is Chief Strategy Officer of Design Operations at SAP, so the most senior design ops practitioner in the land. So that will be Wednesday at, um, at 9 a.m. And then next week, I'll be on a panel that's focused on building great design teams. And that, I believe, it's a UK-based organization. So it's like UK time. So it'll be an early morning for me. But it's how to build strong product design teams. And then every Friday around noontime, West Coast time, I host a room on Clubhouse with the Design Ops Corner. So we just talk about design operations. We really nerd out. People ask questions. Every other week, there's a topic, and every other week, it's just like a casual chat. So if you're on Clubhouse, find the club and, and join the conversation. Well, we'll have to have the Design Ops Corner on here. I actually had the UX Research Corner on SF Design Week last week. It was really fun. Yeah, they're great. It is very challenging to have six people on a live stream, <laughs> but it was fun nonetheless. Is there any sort of wisdom that you want to impart on the listeners before we close out? I am a big advocate of bringing back the remix as it relates to design and like how we do design. I think a lot of people, especially junior people are like, we need to make my mark. And so I need to build this thing from scratch. But some of the most innovative things and whether it be music or art or design have been taking what someone else has already started, the foundations that they've laid, and putting your own spin on it. And I think that in some cases, designers are scared of that. In some cases, even leaders and managers and design ops practitioners are scared of that. It's like, well, here's a box. I'll just fill the box. And you know, the only way that you can innovate and push anything forward is by you know remixing a little bit. So embrace the remix. I love that. Again, thank you so much, Dominique, for telling your story and imparting that wisdom. Enjoy the rest of your time in New York. Thank you, Harrison. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. Ratings and reviews help this podcast tremendously. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll return the favor by giving you a shout out on the show and on Instagram. AJ Kim 0822 says, this is one of my go-to podcasts to listen to while I'm driving. 
The cadence of Harrison's interaction with guests is great. Normally I play podcasts at 1.5 speed because the conversations can be a bit slow, but not with this podcast. Harrison has such wealth of knowledge and experience, and I'm so glad he created this podcast to share it. AJ Kim, thanks for the review. This means so much. I created these segments to be as long as they were so you could listen to them on that morning walk or that drive to work. Happy to hear that you listened to it in the context that it was created for. I'm looking forward to sharing more reviews on upcoming episodes, so don't forget to submit yours today.